Hi folks, the podcast you're about to hear was recorded yesterday at noon in front of a live online audience of Tortoise Shack members. If it's something you'd love to come along to, it's very simple. Join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link goes out, you register, and you know, we even upload the mics at the end, turn the recording off, and we have a chat amongst ourselves. It's always the best crack of the week. Thanks for listening, thanks for the support, and do join us this week. We have unbelievable stuff lined up, including coverage from, yet again, going back to Ukraine. We have a, a new voice coming from the US, and Killian Woods is joining me later on this afternoon to talk about the Vulture Funds and their low-tax, uh, high-profit margins that have uh, revenue are now looking into. Lots more besides, and I mean lots, lots more besides, Plus, there's all, over now a thousand podcasts, plea free, available on patreon.com forward slash tortoise Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for telling people about us. Thanks for, thanks for reviewing. I actually saw a few people left reviews. I, I'd forgotten that that was a thing in podcasting. We've been doing these things too long. Um, yeah, but thanks for that as well. And I'll let you enjoy what was a bumper, bumper Sunday show. And I hope to see lots of you there next week. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast and this is our Sunday special and Martin I've actually told you we're going to have to start doing these a bit more regularly obviously uh, the, the, this is the show that, that people seem to love despite um, my protestations that it doesn't matter people actually lo- like to hear from you when you're at your belligerent self. Yeah and I also think you know we haven't had a quiet silly season and uh, we've no. had a really good silly season so yeah absolutely let's yeah. rock on. Just uh, just to keep people in, in, in mind now, we, you spoke earlier to Keenan Brennan from the Irish Examiner about the fallout, uh, the, the case going to the onboard Planala to the DPP uh, and, and, and what that all means. Uh, and we're going to play that obviously now for listeners. They will hear that when this podcast comes out in full. But can you give me just like a 25 second overview if I can keep you down to it, if that's OK? Yeah, well... I suppose we look past the the legalities or the 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 kind of slipping and sliding that's going on to the bigger picture, and we're in a situation where we were many years ago. We've been told to tighten our belts, and whilst we're tightening our belts, they're wearing charvet shirts and living like princes, and that was really the basis of it. I seriously doubt Keenan Brennan said those words. Oh, well, but, I said uh, those words, and Keenan agreed with me. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, for for the benefit of listeners, that that will be in this podcast now. We're joined by Keenan Brennan from the Irish Examiner, and Keenan has been following a couple of stories very closely that are going on, and. and uh, we spoke to the chaps who are breaking these stories during the week, and they are uh, working very hard. But there's been a multitude of stories, Keenan, about the onboard Planola. And it seems to have developed quite quickly, but I know there was a lot of work in the background. Can you give us a broad sweep of where it stands at the moment? Well, I suppose if you want to talk about where it stands at the moment, you have to talk about how we got here. So back in April, the ditch website, independent investigative uh, reporting website, um, did a couple of reports on the deputy chair of onboard Panala, the then deputy chair, Paul Hyde, um, suggesting a conflict of interest on his part because he had uh, voted, which is what onboard Panala does, it votes in little uh, subgroups of the board on different developments as to whether they get planning permission or not. He had voted on one that was apparently 50 meters away from a property that he part owned. And he hadn't declared this property in his declaration of interest. He had done previously, but he hadn't done at that time when the decision was made. And that decision has since been judicially reviewed. 
Uh, and that was just the first of quite a few stories that were to come out about Mr. Hyde. The next significant one was uh, to do with his sister-in-law's uh, prospective extension in South uh, County Dublin. And uh, obviously, you're not really supposed to be voting on a family member's uh, application. The application went in his sister-in-law's name, which didn't share a name with him. And he subsequently claimed that he didn't realise that it was his sister-in-law's house and he had looked at the address when he was voting, which is obviously, you know, doesn't, doesn't seem like a and very... It, it, it is, is the position is that they should recu- recu- recuse themselves from anything involved personally. Isn't that the position? Well, I remember when I started looking at this story myself, I was speaking to somebody quite senior on board Panola about it because they weren't giving a statement. And I said, you probably should be saying something about this. And they said, why? And I said, well, because a vacuum, you know, an awful lot of things come out of a vacuum. And what they said to me was, it isn't entirely clear to us that these uh, these things should have been declared. And then they said, do you think they should have been declared? And I said, well, absolutely. I mean, I think absolutely objectively, not only should they have been declared, but that anybody making such a decision should have recused themselves. That's just, that's a, how any fair-minded person would uh, would see it. But anyway, sorry, I've, I've gotten a bit, uh, yeah, a yeah, bit of a sorry, digression. So anyway, yeah, he had that one that was uh, also outed by the ditch. And then finally, my own paper started to pay some attention to it and it went started to get a little bit more mass media, not much, but a little. Um, and then there were suggestions that also Mr. Hyde had been involved in liquidation of properties, uh, suggesting, you know, um, possible that he had financial obligations that weren't being declared to the board also. And under a section, uh, I'm not actually sure if it's section 147 or 148, that's the sort of thing that has to be declared to the board as well, because I think you de facto become a non-member if something like that is going on. Um, So anyway, after that, the story started to absolutely fly out. But at that time, and you're talking end April, the Minister for Housing, Darrell O'Brien, who is obviously the, you know, the the boss man for onboard Planola, he announced an investigation into those specific instances that I just outlined to you, but not anything else. And he got Remy Farrell, who is a senior counsel with a very strong reputation for being thorough and fair-minded, to uh, run this investigation. And the investigation reported back at the end of July. And then three days ago, the minister came out with a statement saying that he had referred the results of that investigation to the Gardaí and the Director of Public Prosecutions. And then suddenly you're like, that's but you didn't, you didn't expect that, Keenan. You didn't expect that to be the next move? No, I didn't. Um, I thought we were going to see if he thought, believed that the alleged conflict of interest were a conflict of interest and that maybe Mr. Hyde hadn't been doing his job properly. Um, but uh, it just, given what we knew about what was being investigated, and we knew quite a bit, um, I didn't think it was going to become a criminal matter. And the fact that it has opens all sorts of questions also. It makes you wonder what exactly was Mr. Farrell looking at and what did he find? But now there's one other thing to this. Paul Hyde resigned at the start of July. Now at the time he was, uh, he had stepped back without prejudice. He'd always claimed he did nothing wrong. That's something obviously that needs to be said. He has claimed he never did anything wrong whatsoever. Um, but he had stepped back without prejudice to let the uh, Remy Farrell uh, investigation continue. Now, he'd actually been voting on board uh, on certain board um, meetings up until six days before that. So, but anyway, he stepped back and then at the start of July, he resigned and that came out of nowhere as well. Now, 
I don't know what you can read into that, but the fact is that the man who's being investigated is gone, and now it's gone to the Gardaí. And will we see? Will we see the report? Yeah, well, the minister says we will, and um, he, he said that reasonably strongly. He says he absolutely thinks that it should be published, and you know, politicians don't like to commit themselves to anything. So I, I would suspect we're going to see it. Yeah, possibly. I think after the doll resumes, and that's just my opinion. I don't know, but that would seem to be the most apposite time to do to to publish it. But we also I don't know what format we're going to see it in. It could be heavily redacted, given that there's a gone to the Guardian. Yeah, yeah, it could well be heavily redacted. Talking about declarations, we have to talk about the 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 story that has arisen with Robert Troy. Um, this is just a saga that keeps every day is a new revelation, Keenan. <laughs> Give us the broad stroke again on this one. Yeah, well, it started off again. It's the, the ditch who, to be fair to it, has done really sterling work on, on the things that it's been covering. It started off with a story on the ditch uh, suggesting that uh, Robert Troy, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Longford West Meath since 2011 and a Minister of State since 2020, that he'd been they discussed his uh, what he was charging uh, rents to tenants in a one-bed flat that he owns. But after that, the stories started to ramp up as regards his declarations of interest. Because uh, I'm not sure if it was over the weekend or earlier this week, uh, it was a house in Mullingar that he had bought and he sold in 2018 for... Um, roughly 40,000 more than any uh, property was going in the estate it was in Ashfields and Mullingar. And he uh, he came out and said that he hadn't realised he had to declare it because he hadn't owned it at the end of the year. And he also said that it was his opinion that he didn't have to declare it as a contract with a public body because he had sold it to Westmead County Council. And we're like, oh, okay. Now, the Standards and Public Office Commission has clarified since that it is of the opinion that such a contract doesn't have to be declared. Now, what do you think of that? They said that because that property doesn't constitute a good or a good. Service. Yeah, yeah, that was that was. But I, you know, I, I presume from the outside looking in, it is more the political vista of this one in that at a time when people are really, really struggling and and yeah. really suffering with the cost of living that we have this kind of situation where in the background we're back to the old high thing you tighten your belts and we'll live the life of lords and it's that which is really getting under people's skin absolutely you've got what you have to declare what you're obliged to declare and what people think you ought to declare now because mr troy has a reputation as being a very solid local td in ireland that means you know you get things done for your constituents but I think if I were to say, so there's been several stories since. Um, and after one we covered in the examiner the other day about another house that he'd sold to Longford County Council that he also didn't declare, he went and looked at all his own properties and he came back to actually there's another one too. And there's been another story since from the ditch yesterday. And from what I understand, there might be more stories in the coming days. And what you would say is Robert Troy went to Clareburn to defend the Mullingar thing, and, but he acknowledged that he had made an error, but he said he didn't have to declare the contract. What he really should have done is said everything. There's actually quite a few other things. And who knows, people might even go, well, you know, he's put all his cards on the table, but instead it has dripped out, it's dripped out. And then yesterday he started getting the dreaded votes of confidence from um, the Tonish and others. And, and I was just wanted to, to mention that, is that, 
yes, the Tarnashta came out and gave him the vote of confidence, but that was very premature considering that it's such a, a rolling ball at the moment. Uh, there is no definite end in sight for this. And there, there seems to be an element of political persuasion in that. I'm quite sure Micheál Martin is not going to allow another Fianna Fáil TD go under the bus when Fine Gael TDs haven't had to face the same sanctions. So I understand why Varadkar came out very quickly, but this government is really in a tenuous position with this, with a majority of one. It is. It has a majority of one, but I don't. Well, I mean, I, in my own head, I don't see. Uh, I don't think Mr. Troy is necessarily going to lose the whip or anything. But if the stories keep on going, the pressure will ramp up, and political pressure eventually, someone will go from having confidence in you to not having confidence in you, in the, in the you know, flick of a switch. So, um, it really depends on where it goes. Uh, it's intriguing. Very- it's intriguing for. Summer, our general, our general, very quiet time in politics. But this summer has been anything but. It has, it has, and it's like well, August was going a bit slowly, but now it's starting to ramp up. And people, especially during silly seasons, what they call it when there's no story, so silliness abounds. When a story comes like that, this comes out at that time, it gets all the focus. And uh, so, yeah, no, no, Mr. Troy's in a he's in a tough position at the moment. We'll see how it goes from. Keenan, thank you very much for taking the time to have this chat with us. And uh, we look forward to having you on the panel again. Cheers. Thanks for me. Uh, we are also delighted to be joined by the two guys behind the ditch uh, who kicked off all that onboard Planala reporting, uh, as well as um, the controversy surrounding and continues to surround Minister uh, for Regulations. And I say that with a, a big grin on my face, Robert Troy, Owen McNeil and Roman Shorthall. Uh, lads, thanks for joining us. I know you're both busy this morning. Uh, Owen, if I could come to you, when we spoke earlier on in the week, we had said, you know, I think the 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 headline was going to be Troy Story Three was kind of tongue in cheek. I put it to you, we must be at Troy Story Seven at this stage. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we spoke to you guys um, early on this week when that was the day that we published. That was a kind of a, I mean, would you call it maybe the midpoint of the of this ongoing saga, which was the story about the house. The house that he sold to Longford County Council, and um, he doubled his money uh, having having owned the house for just three months. Uh, as the week went on, um, I suppose the hits just kept on coming. He had to make a number of statements, uh, and each each statement sort of characterized by his uh, what I would say would be his attempts to kind of get away with as little as possible, I suppose. Um, He was forced to kind of continue acknowledging more and more properties that he hadn't declared, company directorships that he hadn't um, declared. And it, yeah, it it very much just rumbled on uh, throughout the week with both ourselves and um, and, um, and Keenan Brennan um, over at the examiner, just um, keeping the stories coming on, the Minister for Trade pr- Promotion, Robert Troy. And then, Roman, we had the the full admission, the, the missive, everything, every box ticked. This is all the stuff I did wrong. And there's a hiatus of 24 hours less where journalists are crawling all around uh, Mullingar Largo. 
and uh, suddenly we have more to the story. Can you fill us in where we're at? Roman, have you got me there, buddy? Just lost you for a couple of seconds, Martin. Yeah, just fill us in where we're at at the moment, yeah. Roman. Yeah, um, as you said, like uh, supposedly Robert Troy has made a uh, full and frank uh, disclosure. Um, as you said, less than 24 hours later, Keenan Brennan runs the story that he failed to register um, one of his tenancies with the Residential Tenancies Board which, of course, is a criminal offence. Um, he's admitted today, um, Aoife Moore has a story with the Sunday Times today um, where he's admitted that he uh, didn't, didn't register the property, but he seems to be laying the blame with the uh, agent um, at the property, conveniently enough. Um, so that, that that's kind of where, where but, we're at. But at legally the speaking, you can't you can't hang that on on the letting agent. You just can't. This is the sort of like no. I mean, you're the landlord, you're responsible for the property. He should be actually accountable for this. And it's just it strikes me very much, Roman, that you know, again, uh, not and this is not having a knock at Eva more. She's done the reporting on this, but he's given a statement there where he's saying, you know, he's Oh, you know, I've spoken to the letting agent and he's very, he's very sorry kind of a bit that this has happened, but that's not how the RTB works, uh, lads. That's just not how the, like, that's, there's potentially, I think it's a, a fine of up to, is it up to 14,000 and up to six months in prison for kind of acting the yeah. bollocks on this? It's, it's 4,000 euro, uh, up to 4,000 euro fine, six months imprisonment. And my understanding from looking at the act is that it's a strict liability offense, which means that there's no there's no necessity in a prosecution to prove any intention or recklessness. It's just if you don't register, you can be convicted. You know, it's as simple as that. And there's no, you know, there's no defense of you know blaming it on the agent or it's the it's the landlord's responsibility. If they don't do it, they can be prosecuted and convicted. It is a very strange situation where uh, the staff is getting blamed. Um, do we think this is where it's going to end? Is this going to be acceptable? This is, the, I think, this is the second time now where other people are, are, are getting the blame for, uh, I suppose, what we call unusual practices when it came to taking cash from the tenant, which of course isn't illegal, but I think in this day and age is a bit, uh, you know, unorthodox. Um, you know, the, the the blame was laid with the tenant that it was the tenant that wanted to pay in cash, and now it's the agent that didn't register the um, the tenancy with the RTB. So it, it seems to be a, a case of uh, Robert Troy not wanting to take any responsibility. Yeah. It's certainly a little bit Bertie, as we'd say around here. You know, it's definitely a little bit Bertie Owen. Do you think there's much to come on this story? And do you think there are a lot of other politicians currently at the moment uh, reassessing what they have declared? Look, you know, at the very least, um, and a number of kind of uh, journalists at, whether you want to call them, you know, like legacy outlets or maybe the mainstream media have said at the at the very, very least, the stories have, uh, it's, all of these stories have, have shown inadequacies and loopholes in Ireland's ethics legislation and what politicians have to, uh, what they have to actually register and what they have to 
um, acknowledge in their declarations. And certainly when you look at the Dáil Register, for a lot of these declarations, I would say that they're characterized by attempts to sort of muddy the waters a little bit about what politicians actually own um, when it comes to rental properties, when it comes to directorships. I would imagine, look, yeah, to speculate, I would I, I would think that Robert Troy isn't unique. Um, I think in, in certain respects, he is... Um, I do think, yeah, like some of these stories have kind of shown him up almost as a kind of a caricature of real, like old, of um, kind of like an old school wheeler dealer, Fianna Fáil politician. And I would imagine that there are um, that there are others like him. As far as the Troy story itself goes, we've um, there are a number of um, a number of other angles that we'll be looking to develop next week, and it it has been it's 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 been really quite interesting. The number of tips that we've received once we started publishing these stories on Robert Troy, it's kind of almost like nothing we'd seen with any other stories that we've published. There's just there has there have been a wealth of people coming forward with stories, um, all sort of related to what we have been publishing. Well, that, can I can, sorry, Martin, I need to come in because it's important to point out that what one of the things people have said is like it's fairly quiet from politics relating to this. But one of the reasons I put it to everybody on this is, and I feel free to jump uh, jump down my throat if you want, is that the amount of uh, people who are now correcting their their own statements of interests, you know, we, we've seen uh, Richard Bruton forgetting he had a farm, Brian Ledden forgetting that he was a landlord. We've seen all of these aspects now where people are now jumping in to correct their own um, statements of assets. And it does seem very much uh, uh, in like of like, well, this is what we were all kind of at. So, you know, uh, and and it was the Tarnished who referred to Robert Troy this week as a class act. Uh, it's it's quite scary when that seems to be the 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 idea that how are how are people who are supposed to be addressing the worst housing crisis in the history of the state uh, going to deal with it when they actually benefit from it? personally and professionally it just seems it doesn't it doesn't add up and to roman um you made a point when we spoke earlier on the week that when people introduce leo varadkar to talk about this topic they should actually mention in advance that you know leo varadkar someone who has become a landlord himself and you know we've noticed that none of this has happened and yet we're here we are again whereby we're in a situation where everybody's rushing to correct the record and no one is speaking out about this class act robert troy yeah, um, I mean, to be fair, like you have um, one politician in particular seems to have, um, you know, really taken issue with all of this. That's uh, Paul, people before Prophet TD, Paul Murphy, who I think has submitted a number of complaints and is now, I think, saying he's going to submit a complaint to the RTB. Um, but other than that, like there seems to be more or less... Um, you know, a, a kind of a, a silence there. I know a lot of, you know, politicians are on holidays or whatever at the moment, but there's no, nobody has, I don't think anyone has um, called on them to resign um, yet uh, from what I can see. But yeah, it's been, been quite silent. I, I think we have to mention the SIPO aspect of this. And I think it's very, you know, um, along with uh, the estate agent being pointed to, SIPO are, are saying, look, we don't have the powers. Uh, it's been like this a long time. But that's not the full picture. 
And it's just simply not the full picture. Sipo does have powers, which it doesn't exercise, which it never exercises. So it's not just that it doesn't have the powers. It doesn't want the powers. And the make of, of Sipo is highly questionable. I think you had words about that, Tony, didn't you? I was very disappointed, as you know, um, with some of the people saying that Sipo have been asking for powers for a number of years. If that, I just don't find that the facts bear that up. And this is not, it sounds, I'm always reticent to do this on air because, Martin, it sounds like I'm picking on certain topics. But the, the reality of the situation is the biggest controversy in Gulf politics over the last number of years was the uh, Leo Varadkar leaking of a document to the NAGP. And the person who, at that time, when that emerged, and again, I mean, you can check my timeline. I've, I've outlined it very clearly. The person who was lobbying on behalf of the NAGP was then appointed to Zippo um, as one of only or six ordinary members. So it just it's hard to it's hard to put that in context and then say, yes, I believe Sippo are, are genuine. I think Sippo are maybe set up to do exactly the job that they do. I yeah. think many, yeah, yeah. you know, we talk about light touch regulation in this country all the time, but we, it's, it's not great when, when, when we're, we're at this and like, I mean, oh, no, like, um, you said your phone hasn't stopped since these stories have come out. We've been in touch during the week. My phone as someone who just covered covered on the podcast has been made aware of certain situations in relating to both Robert Troy and uh, other other um, politicians, you know, operating in in the, as, as in the landlord class. I mean, this is something now that maybe maybe now we can actually bring out into the expose the best the best disinfectant the sunlight on. Do you think there's more that's going to come out on this? I think so. Yeah, and um, and I do think we can. I suppose with any story like this that involves sort of having to appeal to an organ like SIPO that is effectively, it, it is of the system itself, you know, and there, are, there always will be shortcomings and inadequacies when you have to do appeal to an establishment body like that. However, to be optimistic about things and um, looking at what, myself and Roman, what our kind of, what we see our role in these kind of stories are, is to just show what is going on and let people know um, this is, you know, this is how power operates in this country. And I think at the very least, it's been really quite remarkable to see how, yeah, how people, how people like Leo Varadkar have responded to the continuing stories about Robert Troy you know, like calling him a class act. Also kind of saying, he gave a statement to the Irish Times, I think, where he said, um, you know, people before they become politicians, uh, a good deal of them are businessmen. Are we saying that it's wrong to go and turn a profit? You know, like when we're talking about, you know, um, really, you know, grubby landlordism, I suppose, you know. And, and I think that, yeah, I think that, to be optimistic about things. I do think, yeah, that sunlight is the best disinfectant and we're just going to continue doing what, doing our very best to kind of show how this country actually operates. Yeah, okay. I think I think what you said about people being in contact, I think that's very important. Um, along with Tony and yourselves, I've had a few as well, and I get them on other stuff. And it shows that there is a level of public awareness. There's just no outlet. There's no way... Uh, people can see that they feel safe to, to speak about it. And that's really a deficit in the country. 
I, I, can I co- comment on that and just say we've heard for a long time that, you know, and we're seeing it this week, the demonization of landlords. The balance of power in Ireland is really skewed. If you're a tenant, you're, you don't have the same rights as you might have if you're a tenant in, in Berlin. You don't have security of tenure. You don't have, you know, uh, a, a proper fixed rent based on if you're Vienna based on your income. You don't have any of these things. So there's no demonization of landlords. The, the, the beginning of, you know, there's some mean tweets about it, but please stop talking about uh, the demonization of landlords. It's, 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 it's playing to a certain cohort and it actually it does a disservice to the general public. We see it now whereby queues of people queuing for a home in, in Drumcondra and we're about to come into the, the student season. So it's going to get worse. We, we do need to move on. Lads, if you want to hang on for a few minutes, please do. But I I, I, I want to move us on because there's uh, we've been joined by the wonderful Dr. Amanullah Dasandi from UCC, who's also now the director of NASC and um. Uh, Amanola, there's been so much going on this week in terms of, I'm going to go first to to NASC and the work that you guys do in in helping people immigration in their status, how how their family reunification, all of these things. But it must be disheartening to see some of the uh, mood music playing out online. And I'm conscious that we need to get to something else much that we want to discuss as well. But I want to ask you that first. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, got you clear. Hi, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I am one of uh, several directors of NASC. Our our work uh, continues. We have recently appointed a new chief um, executive officer, Fiona Hurley, who's been doing um, an outstanding, uh, you know, uh, job um, uh, as interim CEO. But this is really, you know, a lot of our services are working with migrants and refugees, asylum seekers, there's all sorts of really, really interesting and important work that's being done. The advocacy project um, has been exceptionally busy. We're doing a lot of community sponsorship, the Ukraine response. Um, we also have what we call the Gateway Women's Project. It's expanded to increase um, English language provision to try to meet some of the huge um, increase in demand. Um, and then there's a, a children and, and young people's project. But this isn't taking away from the fact that direct provision is still a huge issue. It's a huge challenge. 18 months on from the publication of the, the white paper on direct provision, the reality is that life has not materially improved for most people. And actually, the, the new applicants for international protection are finding themselves facing conditions that are far worse. So, you know, what we also, I mean, the stats are clear, 191% increase in people seeking asylum in Ireland since 2019. And you know this is this is this is a, a huge issue, um, and it's really unfortunate. Um, and I say this, you know, as something that came from our CEO uh, Fiona Harley, that it's unfortunate rhetoric by the minister um, about um, you know Georgians or Albanians claiming asylum in, in in Ireland. And if asked, you know, we usually respond that people can flee persecution for any number of reasons. Um, and they're often simplistic and contrary to the, to the Geneva Convention. You know, we we, we place a, a, an important eye on Afghanistan. We look, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's 48,000 arrivals from Ukraine. There's also a huge issue of regularization of the undocumented um, uh, scheme as well. So, so NASC is working really very hard and we're stretched um, for resources as well. So, um, we're, we're trying we're trying to make. Um, Ireland, um, a, 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 a place of, of welcomes, a place of, of comfort, um, and we're also trying to raise the awareness. 
um, of um, uh, of some of the, the the real harsh realities that that, that folk are are having to deal with, and the real inequality of outrage that we have. You know, in in the sense of what we've done, how we how we talk about uh, Ukrainians, um, how we pit pit you know refugees and migrants against each other, which is really quite disgusting, and we fall we fall trapped to that far too easily. You know, um, is is are, are Ukrainian bodies more significant for us um, than than Afghanis or Syrians? And that's that's I think we're we're learning, and it, and it needs to it need, we need to continually uh, be challenged uh, by that type of uh, uh, it can be subtle and it can be it can be very clear as well. I just want to say that I don't think you've put it, could have put it any better than yourself. Uh, than you've just did. It was, it's just a brilliant way to to frame it. We've mentioned you've mentioned Afghanistan. We're now we cover Afghanistan. We're a year moved on. Let's talk about what's really happened there. A two trillion has been spent in in Afghanistan. One point five million troops of different uh, armies have moved through that country, and now they're withholding money, which is a form of collective punishment. Uh, uh, Man, it really is a form of collective punishment because the Taliban are in charge, which rushed back into power within bloody 48 hours of the US withdrawal. And they're withholding billions, which is leaving 25 million people in a country of 48 million people food insecure. That means they don't know where the next meal is coming from. And we've covered this for a year on this convert on this podcast. And people are choosing between literally, I hate to say this, but they're there, yeah. There's just teenage brides happening now because it's it's easier to to go that way. Sorry, you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. You know, leaving Afghanistan is extremely perilous, it, and and those without passports or the ability to secure visas uh, to bordering countries and transit from there even to Ireland, they continue to experience difficulties with finding a safe route here. And that's exactly the reason why NASC have assisted almost 40 individuals with visa waivers to get to Ireland and to begin, you know, th- their lives here. So there's really, you know, two, two key asks really from NASC is, is to issue decisions on the Afghan admission programme. And also number two, to new family reunification programme for those who came here on visa waivers and had to leave family behind. These are really important issues which we at NASC take very seriously. And, and that, that's something that, 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 that the entire team are working on every day. How is NASC getting on dealing with the powers that be? Um, well, you know, we, we, uh, you know as, as a director, I, I, I often think that my, my, my role um, as, as, a, as a volunteer director, because, you know, believe it or not, I do actually have a day job, which is, which is trying to do some sort of Islamic studies here in Ireland, um, is, um, is something that, that I think um, is part of so many discussions for us here in Ireland, which is this continuous pitting some sort of West with everything else. And we continue to fall trap to this mindset, which is affecting us. It's making us think that in some way we are saving, we are better. There is something, you know, exceptional about us. And whether we say it in those words, it, it, is, it is like, you know, it's, it's having an effect. It, it has ripple effects at so many different levels. And I just feel that we need to check ourselves continually 
when we fall into this very, very simplistic dichotomy. Um, and that, that I think is, and, and I think that that's where the real good work on migrants and refugees is happening, where we, we, we separate ourselves from this, this idea, which has so many different layers to it. It, it falls trapped to race, to racism, to white supremacy, to um, all sorts of political um, movements of, of trying to understand things. It falls to Islamophobia. It falls to every, you know, it just it just has such a big effect. So, so it's really about continually checking and it's, and it's not complicated. It, it, it's just it's just it's just how I think we 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 must we must uh, push ourselves to 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 sit back and and to think about some of these privileges um, that we that we hold. I want to go through a few things very quickly before we go move on to the the meat of the topic that we want to talk with to you with uh, with uh, Amanullah if that's okay. So a couple of things. I've just had a text this minute from um, a, a journalist in the Ukraine, and I've spoke to someone in Moscow this morning. We've seen. What I kind of describe as, you know, um, attacks in in areas where maybe Russia, you know, the, the the talk of what's happening in 2014, attacks in in Moscow this morning. We've seen the assassinations. We've seen guerrilla warfare tactics, and we've seen that that situation evolve. Um, you know, Putin has has let it be known that he kind of has the corridor that he's been pushing for all along that 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 connects the area. But it does seem now that there are partisans and 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 guerrilla tactics that are being employed, and it's going to create obviously a long drawn out war. Um, I'm 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 just very conscious that we will cover that throughout the week, but there's also you know there there's uh it, it, it's it should be concerning everybody that we now have a situation whereby we're we're settling into a situation from a domestic point of view the cabinet today are expressing what i call outrage it's like fall outrage about oh we're we're going to have energy deficits electricity is how did we get here and you know martin you notice we've been oh, talking tony we know how we got here but we we've been talking exactly about it for for, for for a long time now it's not like it's you cannot possibly claim that you're surprised that this well just the proposals that are on the table at the moment let me just quickly mention is tariffs extra tariffs during peak hours so when the kids and you come in and it's time to cook dinner it's no we can't have dinner until after nine o'clock you can't do your homework because we can't turn on the lights. This is where we're at. This is where we're at. Uh, honestly, what type of country is this? Yes, we will be talking about this during the week, Tony. Yeah, we know we'll be coming back to it. And, and again, he's uh, all go mad at me, but I'd like to point to uh, consistently knocking it out of the park on the coverage from is uh, Daniel Murray yet again, showing how the state have not been uh they've been aware of this situation report after report's been coming across their desk so for the cabinet now to be pretending that they're jumping up and down and taken by surprise by this just doesn't fit um the other thing that really bothered me in the last martin again we spoke about this trans issues we've seen in the us we've spoken what was it was it four per day in the first <sighs> four months of this year legislation moving and, and, and our pal Lilith has, has tweeted out during the week exactly where this has gone, where a little girl uh, won a race and parents of uh, other children said, no, that must be a trans child. And they had to go back and check her records all the way to kindergarten. Now, that's where this has gone. I mean, utterly, utterly ridiculous witch hunt nonsense. Utterly. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you have a word to say about it. I think this is this is this is an issue that's not going away. It's because we we fail to to understand 
um, you know, the, 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 what individuals are going through. Um, and and we, we, we're so used to boxing people. Um, you know, uh, uh, wh- why are you not sitting in a neat box? Why are you not sitting in a neat toilet? And, and I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to say it like that. That's the way we under, that's, that's how shallow our mindset is. And it's affecting individuals. Words matter, the way we say things, the way, we, the way we're not taking time to understand individuals and how individuals understand themselves. I think this, is, this, is, this isn't going away. Um, so um, we, 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 need, we need to have a reasoned uh, discussion and debate. But, but I, I, I'm of the opinion that it's very hard to, 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 offer, to say, oh, but there's, there's two sides to this. If an individual is saying that this is who they are and how they, how they feel and how they, they want to act, I do not know how you, how you go on two sides of that. That's, this is, these are some of the issues that we're going to have to, to deal with because um, the, you know, the, the, the trans issues in the UK, and I've seen them, I've seen the way they have affected so many different uh, levels of, of, of Scotland, you know, where, where I grew up. So um, it's coming, it's, it's, ha- it's happening here in Ireland as well now. Um, just uh, the other thing, obviously, is the the um, student accommodation, and this is going to lead into what we're going to talk about as well. And is that that is going that is starting to filter up? It's incredible the pressures that are on our system at the moment. We've seen the reports of you know three times more Airbnbs available than there are uh, for spaces for students. We've seen what this is happening, and again. You've already seen the creeping, ugly side of nationalism coming out on that. You know, oh, we're inviting foreign students over, or we're, or we're, we're having to move refugees. And and again, I know Amin already spoken about the fact that the idea of of the white paper of of getting rid of direct provision that time that time frame has all gone away, and all of these things are happening now. And it it plays it is, on. It is so. It is a serious issue. You know, we, we, you know, I, 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 as the head of a department at a university, um, I, I see education holistically. My students, our students cannot thrive if they're not in comfort, if they're not in peace, if they, not, if they do not have a place to sleep. I mean, it's as simple as that. I cannot put together a program in religion if my students are sleeping in a car. If my students can't afford to come to campus, we are moving to the stage now where we're, we're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about, we're about to move into a pro, an academic program where we want our students to come in person, which I, I truly believe in. I, I, I like to see my students. But that's, for me now, it seems an ideal because many of our students can't afford to come in person to a class. That for me is absolutely shocking. What are we doing uh, to, to get to that? I'm one of the few extremely privileged individuals who during the pandemic bought a house. And I think to myself, good grief, how, how, is, this, how is this possible? So I, I, you know, I, I feel a, a great sense of privilege to think about that and, 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 and some of the difficulties that, that, that the incoming students are, are having to face because I've, I heard far too many very horrible, horrible stories about students you know, going uh, and, 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 and finding all sorts of ways of, of feeding themselves. The, you, you, can't, you can't study at a university if you're hungry. I mean, it's so simple as that. So this requires 
joined up thinking and it needs us to all lock arms um, at, from all different levels. From the And I know my university and I'm very proud of what the university is doing on this and looking at this holistically. They do do that. And I'm not saying that because they pay my paycheck, but it's because I think it is important. But it also requires all sorts of other parts of society. And, I, you know, the, the housing crisis and there's a, there's a lot going on. But, it, but if we want if we want our students to thrive, if we want to have an intellectual you know, future, um, and I'm not saying that going to university makes you intellectual, but that, that, that conversation for another day. But, um, but, but if we want individuals to go and have a, the challenges of a university, something needs to happen and it needs to happen fast. I, I agree with you there. And I definitely think that the call for solidarity that you put in there uh, between groups, that that is what needs to happen. Over the last 11 years, homelessness has grown by 285% overall, but specific groups are even more affected. Children, absolutely the worst group affected. And you think this is a, a modern, wealthy country. How could that happen? Um, yes, it's about solidarity. And what you're doing in your other work is bringing people together in solidarity, though. That is that is your aim. Can we? Sorry, I want to. I do need to move us on. I'm conscious of time. I want to get to a debate that flared up this week. And uh, Amanullah, I know you've been. You know, you've been watching this. It's the comments by uh, by Dr. Al Kadri, who's been on this podcast before, uh, and I've had. I, I will. I won't lie. I've always been very open with. I've enjoyed the man's company. I found him to be a very engaging speaker, uh, and the issues around being gay, Irish, and Muslim. And 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 some of it now, obviously, there's criticism that comes into when people make comments that can be deemed to be homophobic, that can be deemed to be, you know, uh, leaving certain communities outside the door. Uh, but there's also uh, levels to this. And, and, you know, we've had a brief conversation this morning about this and uh, you've you've kind of you've kind of used your um your own personal experience on this to 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 shine a light on it. Can you share with me some of your thoughts on that? And we maybe we might we might open that up a little bit more. Thanks. Um, so so you know I I've been working on this for for all of my academic life. I I wrote the first uh, full book length um, um, monograph on the crisis of Islamic masculinities. It's published by Bloomsbury. If you have if you have an interest in in buying that book, but it was to interrogate the idea of what does it mean to be a Muslim and man. And 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 this is a this is a wider wider question o- o- on this issue. Um, sexuality uh, it has has always been a, 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 um, an an issue within biblic- the biblical monotheism. So let so I'm giving a little bit of a one on one here. Islam is an extension. It is part of the legacy of what was started by biblical monotheism by Judaism. And then Christianity and then Islam. You cannot separate these three religions because they are biblical monotheistic traditions that three, believe in one God. Three tributaries, one river. That's it. Um, uh, and, and basically, they have always contested ideas of, of sexuality because they've always they have they are religions of um, very neat ideas of what it means to be, to, uh, generally speaking, uh, historically speaking, theologically speaking, man, woman, procreate, have kids. Now, that is not to say that there have been within the theologies lots of other alternative differences that have emerged. 
The problem lies today, you have an emergence of very outspoken and proud gay Muslims, which is it's very recent. In the past, just like Judaism and Christianity and Islam, there was an element of don't ask, don't tell. There were elements of individuals who were married. They kept up, up to religious and societal norms. They got married and they did all sorts of things on the side, um, hidden away behind closed doors. That is changing now. We have out and proud individuals within these. And I'm, I'm, I'm focusing particularly on Judaism, Christianity and Islam. The problem is when you have an imam who turns around and on one side is saying that this is an, a, a welcoming open space and on the other side you're saying that this is a sin. You are either one, you, you cannot sit on the fence on this. This is, this, is very, this is very important. And this is where I think that um, this uh, Sheikh, uh, Dr. Umar al-Qadri is, is finding, uh, this is where I think there is this kind of tension because at one level, his speeches, his talks have been open and he's talked about a safe space, but he's also holding to, holding to his truth, which is a very uh, uh, ideal form of theology, which sees um, sexuality outside of the norm as a sin. That's, that's where the problem lies. One other really important point is a mosque is not like a church. The way we talk about churches, we cannot talk about mosques. Muslims go into that a little bit more because it's this is something that I've kind of had an understanding from I have to be honest with friends from friends of mine from the, the Muslim faith from Turkey actually opened my eyes at, at that community opened my eyes to, that it's not the same. But if you could just because a lot of listeners won't get that because we obviously are brought up in, in the Catholic orthodoxy. Right. So you have so you have, for example, you have denominations within Christianity which have then set up a church. They have particular forms of theology and that theology thrives in relation to other churches. You you don't have you what you generally have is then you have a, a different system that's happening in churches. A mosque, an imam is is really the main job of an imam is to lead a prayer in a mosque. An imam in a mosque, for example, the, the sheikh or an imam in Dublin or Cork or anywhere, they, they, they are only an imam as long as they have a congregation. And they, they will talk about a particular form of theology. Now, in this case, we're talking about Sunnis, right? That's another problem that we have. We, we, we have to be very clear that um, Sheikh Dr. Umar al-Qadri and all of these conversations that are happening are happening about Sunni Islam. You cannot, this is where I, this is where I, I find this baffling. You have you talk, talk from these LGBT organizations talking about Islam and Muslims without actually being able to, to, to talk about or understand the intricacies or the internal debate or the, di the difficulty in pitting all of this together. That's where it becomes problematic. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that the issue we'd, we'd suffer? Like it's, it's, if I wanted to, like during the week, I saw the amount of this. Is, we just had Owen and Roman on from the ditch. During the week, I saw a lot of media organizations have other journalists on to talk about the work of Rome and, 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 and own. And I thought to myself, if I wanted to um, drink a can of take, know what a can of Coke tastes like, I drink the can of Coke. I wouldn't invite someone who's watched someone else drink a can of Coke. And, you know, in this in this really clumsy metaphor of mine uh, to not engage with the community in question does seem uh, I'm going to say it's problematic. 
you have look many muslims are are, are coming as as immigrants they're coming they, they, you know they're coming from with all sorts of different backgrounds a lot, a lot of different allegiances a lot of very complicated familial connections to to, to and and you know the mosque on a you know is is a place of congregation it's a place that brings people together to speak out is 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 huge right it's it's a very very difficult thing what is important to note here is that there are mosques which do not say that being gay or or being queer is a sin this is a problem right so this is this is where you have if a mosque wants to say it's a, this is a sin we 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 don't want that's fine but what you have is you have alternatives so you look at you look at organizations which are the inclusive mosque for example in london and many many other parts of the world Ireland is 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 new all of these issues are new. we haven't even got to the stage of understanding muslims and now you're talking about queer muslims right this is this is a a, a huge um 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 issue in in trying to 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 make sense of this so so again what i'm saying is that there are there are many different different ways of looking at islam and there are many different ways of understanding muslims and there is a history of this so you can have uh, you you will find muslims uh, and and you will find theologies which say no the only way is to have man women children that's procreation and then you will find all sorts of colorful queer forms of islamic theology my problem with this news story this week is that this is the the statements that have been issued by these organizations sadly i also feel the gay project also published this as well is that this is homo nationalism one of this is feeding into homo nationalism and if i can read from a document here published Please by do. alexander dost homo nationalism refers to the way lgbtq lesbian gay bisexual transgender rights are increasingly incorporated in mostly western conceptions of nationhood at the expense of ethnic and religious others most prominently muslims who are considered inimical to the lgbt friendly nation that is a problem because i can and i know you don't have time but i can go through this statement that has been published by these organizations which i have a lot of respect for you also have politicians who have signed this um and 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 it, it goes through the the issue but then it, here's the interesting one at the end indeed many lgbt plus people from across the globe have come to ireland precisely because it is easier to be their authentic selves what exactly is that doing what is what what do you want to to come from that to say that we are liberated we are the bastions of lgbt friendly we have we have uh, you know equal marriage etc hugely problematic so you cannot do social justice work when it comes to queer communities by using language like this so my call is to lgbt organizations in ireland do better and think better and then to to you know to try to cover this up the the statement of it says this includes lgbt plus muslims who will be especially hurt and dismayed which lgbt muslims did these organizations talk to we express our full solidarity with them the way this is framed will very easily if somebody has half a brain uh, you know the opening is a number of lgbt plus community groups throughout the country have responded which lgbt plus community groups are they predominantly white are they predominantly from a from a particular from, from a particular grouping 
And then you go and you, and you talk about one sexual orientation and the expression of such as natural, innate. I agree with this. I, 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 I am also of the opinion, I'm of the, the theology on the side of in inclusivity, of allowing somebody to, to be who they are. And I'm not, I, I, but what I'm also saying is that, that, that this requires um, uh, more joined up thinking. I think it is unfortunate if it is true that if uh, Dr. Umar al-Qadri is, is, has, has used monkeypox and said, you know, this is, this, these are the same arguments, and we know this, religious arguments in the past, that, that it is mm. God's wrath um, uh, of AIDS and, and HIV, and, and, you know, all of the, we, we know this, there's a history of this. But what we need to do is we need to understand the, the political, uh, you know, the, 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 the political moves that are being made and who this will feed in, into. Because I say this as a, as a proud Muslim, that I, that I understand that there are very colourful and very queer elements in Islam. Some people may not see them. Some people may not uphold and live with them. That's fine. We don't all have to be the same. But I think my call is for LGBT organisations in, in, in Ireland to think better and words matter. In the same way that we're talking about any issue on trans or think about the words that you're putting together. And I think my call is go and do some reading on Jasper Poir's work on homonationalism. I'm sick and tired of us, you know, using our nationalist ideas of being Irish as something. Oh, yes, we have panty bliss and we have all of this and that, that's all we have. Yes, lovely. I do. I do celebrate that. But it can't be that, that we in the West are some sort of upholders of sexual freedom and everything else is just going to be thrown under the bus. Sorry, I just went off. No, I'm going to. I really, really, really think people will get a lot from that. And I just want to come in on the back of it and, and add that, yes, absolutely. And um, we should be always, always checking our own um, biases or internal biases, whether they're what we've grown up with or whatever we've done. And, and, I, and I say that to you, particularly knowing that you've just recently become an Irish citizen and, you know, like obviously want to congratulate you on that, but it just shows that identity is, is, is where, is where you are. It's what you, what you, what you see yourself and how you do it. And we need to, we need to incorporate all of those aspects into what we do. I mean, much of the work I mean, I'm going to plug, um, we, we launched this, the shrapnel podcast yesterday. If you told me and Martin five years ago that a tortoise shack would have launched a podcast, uh, head, um, led by, a unionist loyalist and a historian of loyalism we'd have said you're mad but here we are now and and we're Can I make one one very Still. small point is that i raised this issue i've been in this country for seven years i know people who have been in this country for over 20 years 30 years they are irish they're naturalized citizens and they tell me that they've they they, they don't want to say that they're irish because they know that it will it will have a backlash. They know that white Irish individuals will say to them, but where are you really from? And they say, we don't want to get involved in that debate. That, for me, is really disheartening. And I'm sorry to say this, but I grew up in a Scotland where this wasn't the case. And I, I, I love Ireland and I feel very Irish, but I want to see Ireland pushing a broader tent, a broader understanding of what it means Irish, so that people don't fear by challenging this conception or this imaginary idea of what, how they understand Irishness and what it means to be Irish. We have a term in Scotland, we all jock Tamsin's bairns, and it gets said every single time, right? 
I don't, what, what is, what is the, I need more, I need this to come out in Ireland. Because, because if we don't, we're allowing the space for those absolute fringe lunatics to take over what it means, this beautiful idea of how, why we are proud to be in this country and what, what that pride that we have in being Irish. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Could not agree with you more. Tony, we need to wrap up, but before yeah. we do, I just want to mention uh, the Collins. Uh, Can I know just one very quick thing? In the same week that we all rejoiced in the Irish athletics team um, and yeah. and first generation people of color representing Ireland and absolutely bringing us all to tears and, and, and huge emotion, the strength of that. That is who we want to be. That is who we aim to be. Uh, but I do think it's a really, I, I do think that's, you know, just timing wise, we need to look at all that in in, in the full circle of it. And we, we can be that better country. We want to be that better country. So thank you, Aman, for 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 saying that and challenging us as well. And, and to Martin's point, yeah, Martin, I don't think people realise that um, Michael Collins opened the first Krispy Kreme um, <laughs> And <laughs> look, I read McClifford's piece about Michael Collins, and he, he makes a very good point about Michael Collins and Arthur Griffin's uh, Arthur Griffiths that they don't get the the due respect the due. Um, and I agree, I agree completely. I my conclusion on why it is is different is particularly with Michael Collins, uh, Fine Gael have laid ownership to him um, instead of him having everybody having ownership of him. Um, I think if it was that way, then we could actually uh, pay these these gentlemen the, the respect that they're due. I just think it was been quite funny. I, I just want to see the funny side of it, whereby Michael Collins, you know, has started showing you know what is it uh, 19 cinemas across the country uh, they're going to show the film Michael Collins I put it to you Martin that we you know we should just show uh, Taken back to back the all three of them because obviously they see more in Liam Neeson than they do well, it's, Michael it's Collins kind of a, it's page. a Father Christmas uh, picture of Michael Collins is what they have you know he cycled bikes at hummus was single you know maybe got involved in, in the odd bit of politics here and there. You know, that's the Fine Gael view of Michael. No, I, I don't want to say it's just Fine. It's not just, just Fine Gael, but the idea that it's, uh, that it's you know, a, a man of peace is actually a very <laughs> difficult thing to swallow. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, no. What was what was the phrase I used? Collins used to work on the dock. Union paid no subs. He's down on his luck. It's tough. So tough. You know, yeah, like yeah. you could, no, you could no, make up no, any he, narrative for Michael Collins at this stage. Uh, and, nor can you transpose him into this into no. into current politics so you know he was a man of a violent era and you have to recognize that that was a violent era but it is the violent era that that what we have but now grew out of it's important and with me just i'll wrap on this it's important to put that in the context of now that he's been you know there's this huge celebration of of his life and now we're also seeing a huge reaction to one poll that said uh, there's a 69% of people who were asked about the um, Michelle O'Neill's comments in the North about, about the no, no alternative to, to the IRA campaign of violence. So we have to all, you know, we look at these things through the prism of time and we have to, we have to explore them and be more nuanced in it and less. Um, oh, well, it's point scory. Yes. Less, less of that. Please, 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 is, less of that. Look, story. we're going to leave it there. Um, just to let you know, there's loads coming out during the week, guys. Like, I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. Killian Woods is going to join us to talk about an unbelievable story that shows vulture funds 
don't like to be called vulture funds. I get another legal letter about that. Um, who have doubled their profits in 2021, somehow managed to reduce their tax pay liability from 17.9% down to 5.9%. So that's going to be a good story. What uh, the and, go? <laughs> and, um, and there's going to be a ton of ton more content. Obviously, we, we, we'll be covering Ukraine and we'll be going back to the US where hopefully John Schwartz will join us to talk about events there as well. Um, I'm going to hang on. If anybody wants to put their hand up, I will open the mics if anybody has any questions. I do want to thank Roman and Owen from, from uh, The Ditch. I want to thank Killian. Uh, excuse me. I want to thank Keenan Brennan for, for joining Martin before we came on air. And I particularly want to, want to thank Dr. Am- Amanullah Dasandi for his time. And what I can only say is one of the best contributions we've had on the Tortoise Shack in a long time. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. and really appreciate it. Enjoy your Sunday. Um, and look, if there's any questions, we'll hang on for a couple of minutes. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.